I'm Rosie Maddio, and welcome to From Pot to Popular, a new podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstreaming cannabis. Welcome to today's episode of Pot to Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Maddio. Today, we're joined by Aaron Miles, Chief Investment Officer at Verano. Aaron is going to join us today and talk about his transition from mainstream investor relations to leading one of the top MSOs in the cannabis space as their investment officer. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks, Rosie, for having me today. I'm so excited to chat with you today. First of all, I always like people to give me like the 90-second elevator pitch. Tell us about Verano. So Verano started in 2014 in the state of Illinois, won a cultivation license. It was really founded with an operational mindset. And that started with our founder and CEO, George Arcos, who has a history of running very successful businesses and saw a huge opportunity in the cannabis space. So developed from Illinois to the footprint that we have now, which once we close goodness growth will be 18 states with 16 active operations. So Verano, the MO is we've always been very conservative on the way that we've run the business and the way that we've raised capital, which is really a testament in the space when you see how many people have, you know, leveraged real estate for sale leasebacks and we've never done that. And, you know, how we've been able to leverage our own internal cash flow to really build out the footprint that we have. So in comparison to a lot of the tier ones, we have a very competitive footprint. We're really happy with what we've accomplished and really the profitability of the company going forward. Amazing. And I also always want to start with a little bit of background just about you as our guest. So you've been part of the industry since the early days of the Chicago cannabis market. So, but what compelled you to switch your gears and pivot to cannabis after a successful career leading investor relations and number of mainstream industries? Like what drew you to cannabis? It's an interesting story because I never looked to get into cannabis. Cannabis found me. And to be honest, I was actually negotiating another job to work in a retail, I will just say a large retail operation that has now since declared bankruptcy and you know the operations have gone under, but they took forever to give me my offer letter. And as that happened, somebody from Cresco Labs had reached out to me and said, I heard about your situation. Would you ever consider taking a cannabis company public? And I uh, was on vacation with my wife at the time. I looked at her, I said, absolutely not. I put my phone down and then I woke up the next morning and really started to look at the industry as a whole. And when you see the growth that is ahead of you and the growth that you're actually able to uh, be a part of and to be a part of actually building the industry, like this was not a mature industry. We're not even remotely close to being mature right now. So to put all the knowledge that I had learned from major Fortune 50 companies to play in a cannabis industry was very compelling. So I think it was the growth aspects. I think it was really be a part of something that, I, to be honest, I don't know if there's ever going to be an opportunity like this again in an industry. So very compelling. At times, I've doubted that decision, just given the lack of sleep and the amount of stress that we have to face on a daily basis. But it really was the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, especially today. And then for Cresco, it was tier one operator, Charlie and team over there are doing a fantastic job. And then you obviously, PI is another major Chicago player. And then there's Verano. And so to make the move over to Verano, it was to really wear a lot of additional hats and help that company go public. So in reality, two cannabis, helping two cannabis companies go public and being able to leverage a lot of the experience I had in the past is, 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 was just kind of too good of an opportunity to pass on. Yeah. And just to follow up on that, in terms of your previous experience, right, taking two companies public, especially in the cannabis space is quite impressive and daunting, I'm sure. So what do you think some of the most important leadership or business skills you learned that you brought over to cannabis, like some of the disciplines from you know your other roles? You have to plan for everything to go wrong. 
And in cannabis, it's not, we're not trying to franchise a bunch of McDonald's where there's a carved out path. We can work with all the banks. We know we can bank at a federal level. We really don't know what the opportunities are. I mean, a day to day, it's like we're told yes. And then within 24 hours, it's no. And so I think the leadership skills is, first of all, you have to remain level-headed. You can't blow a gasket and let your emotions get the best of you because that'll just be a detriment. So you have to remain calm and cool, collected to really kind of focus in on how you want to get the business done. But again, you have to kind of plan for everything to go wrong. And so you build a structure and you build a framework and you know what you're trying to accomplish and you just kind of have to maneuver through a very uncertain world. So I think it's leveraging the opportunities when they present themselves and then figuring out an alternative path when they don't. Yeah. And just even to follow up on that. So what were some of the greatest obstacles Verano has faced like in this process or, and overcame, I would say until now. And also like, how have you guys incorporated any of these learnings into the company's practices today? Because it has been a roller coaster for everybody. You know, it's basically who you can work with. And, you know, when I say like, we are told yes one day and then no the next, you always have to have a backup plan. And so I used to run a couple of marathons a year. I'm trying to get back into it, but the mistake- We can I talk made, about this. We can discuss this. I'm a marathoner too. Okay. Well, well so, and, so I'm sure- Marathons and tips. <laughs> so, and I'm sure you can attest to this, but the mistake I made- I didn't plan on blisters. I didn't plan on a part gravel road. I didn't research the course. I got dehydrated. I didn't look at the weather. I was doing things for the first time on race day that I wasn't doing during training. And so, but when you adapt and you evolve, like it's second nature to me now, right? And I plan for all those things. And so the obstacles that we face, it's like, who can be your transfer agent? Who can house your shares? Like we all get equity. And this is what the biggest attractive component is, is we're not massively paying salaries here. So you want people to be a part of the growth of the equity portion. Well, where do you even house those shares and how do you execute if you ever did want to buy or sell? So it's learning those little things and then putting it into play. But I think the biggest thing we're doing is positioning ourselves for when opportunities actually present themselves. And we can't sit back and wait for them to say like, okay, now you can work with X bank. We have to already have that relationship built. And when X bank can work with us, then we're ready to pull the trigger and be ready to go. So it's, it's learning how to work with state regulators. I think this is a big component that I should have mentioned earlier is we basically run separate businesses in every state that we operate in. The CCC in Massachusetts is different than the CRC and, you know, and it's different than Illinois regulation. And so for us, we have to make sure that we develop a, you know, a strong relationship with all the regulators, because as these markets develop, we want to make sure that we're not missing opportunities as well. So it's, it's a lot to keep track of. And to be honest, if safe passes or something like we start to get more opportunities to operate like a normal business, our world might get a little bit easier, but easier in the sense where it's not as chaotic as it is right now. So. Yeah. You guys recently celebrated your one-year IPO in February. And so just I mean, before we even talk a little bit more about the business, so what were some of the most valuable insights you gained while the, te- while you took, while the team took the company public? And also, I, and this is just follow up to what you just said, like how does the experience pair your team to list on US-based exchange? Because like you took companies public on the CSC and some of like the smaller boards. So talk to us about like how you guys set that up. Yeah, very appreciative of Richard Carlton and the team at the CSC because it was an opportunity for us to list, use our shares as currency. But it's no secret, you know, the CSC is not the NYSE. And so the lessons learned is, you know, there's not a lot of guardrails that protect your stock on a daily basis. And and it just doesn't trade like a normal US-based exchange. 
But there's things that we can do, right? It's developing relationships with investors. It's managing your cap table extremely well. So that's probably lesson number one is you have a lockup schedule when you go public. And a lot of people freak out about this lockup schedule because you're going to have certain vesting periods where people can sell shares. And I think the misconception in the market is that when a lockup period hits, that all of a sudden there's going to be this flood of shares into the market. Well, if you're properly managing your cap table, that's that's not going to be an issue. And I can tell you, we know our share shareholders extremely well. We know liquidity events that they may be looking for. So we manage our cap table extremely well. So I would say that's probably point number one is, is really get to know your shareholders and, and don't take for granted that they're going to be in it for the long, long haul because you have a lot of neighbors of a founder who potentially want to build a house down in the Bahamas and they're very price insensitive. So they don't care if it's at seven or if it's at 15, they want to build their house and their cost basis is like 75 cents. So they don't care. So it's, it's just knowing the dynamics around that. And then what bankers you use. I mean, I think it's no secret that there's good banks and there's bad banks. And we want to make sure that you know, who, who we're doing business with has the best interest of Murano in mind. So I'd say really bet out the banks that you're working with. And, and, you know, I would say, again, between that lockup schedule and just gaining relevance in the market, it's conferences are a pain in the ass. We all know that talking to investors every day can be, you know, a challenge, but we have to do it. And if you want to gain relevancy and you want your, your message and your words to get out there, then, or your, you know, your story to get out there, then you have to put the time and the effort in. So... Absolutely. And shifting gears a little bit more into operations and how you guys run the business. During the Q1 earnings call in June, you guys said that Rano doesn't run the business based on non-fundamental dislocations of the equity markets. A little bit follow-up to this. And that you guys are building a company for long-term growth and success. So what is what are the most important factors to keep in mind when people are trying to scale with the market volatility? Like, like what do you have to take into consideration given that you guys have a business to run and it'd be a very volatile market and that you're on the CSC? Yeah. So it's, it's, let's use a marathon training again, right? You put the time, the miles in, it, those results should show up on training day. And it's not going to show up from just a week of training. Most training programs are 18 to 24 weeks. And for us, we know we have to put that time and that effort in to build the business. And if you look at like, we're not naive to where the, the, the markets are trading at. We're not naive to where we're trading at in comparison to the tier ones. But we're not going to push the panic button. We're not going to do a share buyback authorization and not actually go out and execute. We're not going to play games where we're trying to put a Band-Aid and, and or throw different messaging out there than, that's kind of different than what the core foundation of what we're trying to build is. So for us, again, it goes back to that framework, right? Like we know what we want to accomplish. We want to establish a presence in, in medical states, grab market share, and then position ourselves ahead of adult use, transact, or adult use transition. And that's in limited license, vertically integrated states. We're going to continue to build and we're going to continue to invest our dollars wisely. I think you've seen overall in the market, people dragging their feet from an M&A perspective, just given some of where the valuations are at right now. And this goes back to how we're a disciplined operator. I know we were on a, a very rapid pace, 16 acquisitions from when we went public, closed 14, two pending. But all of it was very methodical, strategic, and deliberate. And so for us, it's sticking to the plan. And it goes back to that marathon thing. You put the time and the effort in, those results are going to show up down the line. So there's a lot that we're doing behind the scenes that, that haven't shown up in the results yet. But I can tell you, we're continuing to invest back into the Murano footprint and looking at how we can continue to expand that footprint strategically. Yeah, and speaking about expanding the footprint in M&A, Rano recently made headlines in February when you guys entered into the agreement to acquire Goodness Growth, which positions you guys in New York, Minnesota, New Mexico. So how do you guys evaluate attractive M&A targets? And are there additional markets you guys have your eye on? 
So, you know, New York was always a market that we were looking at. And we've had plenty of opportunities to execute from basically late 2017, 2018, when those licenses really started to get issued to, to now. And But we wanted to wait to see how that market played out. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, executing at the right time. I think one of the things I haven't highlighted is that we're really proud of the fact that we always try to stay a step ahead of market growth and we don't try to get 15 steps ahead, right? Because then you're over-investing and then you're waiting for that growth to catch up. And it's the same thing with where we invest. So New York, we invested right ahead of adult use. We feel that SAFE is, is starting to gain some steam. But that market's going to look a lot different once these big events start to, to play out. The adult use turns on, SAFE passes, you know, you start to see other operators get into the state. We also wanted to see how licensing was going to play out because organically, like what we're doing in New Jersey, we would want to do that in every state that we operate in. <laughs> like, like, let us build out the assets, just give us the paper license, and then we'll go from there. But it didn't look like that was going to be an opportunity. So New York was always a market that we wanted to acquire assets in. And we feel that we executed a deal at the right time, pending the close, which we're anticipating by year end. And, you know, so New York is, is going to be a massive market for us. Minnesota is going to be kind of the unsung hero. There's only two operators in the state, and we're going to be one of those. So you have a cultivation facility, eight dispensaries. Our buddies, GTI, are the other operator in that in that state. Minnesota is actually getting very two buttoned up operators to kind of set the tone for what that program is going to look like. So we're really happy with Minnesota and then New Mexico. I mean, they did 5 million in the first three days and, and, and you're never going to keep up that type of pace after adult use turned on, but it's going to be a nice little addition to the portfolio. And you're not always going to have a Florida level contributor to your, your portfolio. You're going to have nice add-ons and that's what New Mexico would be for us. So we're very excited about this acquisition we're continuing to, to work on the regulatory steps to get it closed and are confident and again, that we'll get it closed by year end. And then other states, we've never been shy about wanting to expand into certain states that we're already operating in. So like Arizona and Nevada, we have very nice presence in Massachusetts. Like we don't have a maxed out footprint in that state. So you could look for us to kind of maybe do some due diligence there. But to say that, I also need to say like we could stop right now. We could integrate operate and be completely happy with the footprint that we have because at the end of the day this is all going to boil down to profitability so for us to just focus on the footprint we have we feel that we could really execute and perform well with the footprint we have right now so yeah and just follow up on that right so you mentioned like that shift from like medical to adult use and, and those markets turning on like in new jersey and the new mexico so it's been almost two months since New Jersey rolled out adult use sales. I know we're all still very excited about it. The numbers are looking great. But what are some of the insights your team learned from this experience? And how will you apply those as you guys turn on these other markets and you integrate with goodness growth and the other acquisitions? Yeah, I think less than one is we would want more than a week to, to get ready for right. adult use to turn on. I'm so that tired from that week. I think yeah, 420 so. plus four, and 421, but... It was ridiculous. Yeah, I went from Benzinga, Miami to there and those media all day long. But um, I would say lessons learned is how to prepare appropriately for adult use turn on. And you're never going to time it perfectly, especially not in cannabis. So we were really ready to go in August of last year. We were told by, you know, by the CRC that, hey, get ready. August turn on. Well, August turned into February. February turned into March 24th. And March 24th obviously turned into April 21st. But we were ready to go. And I think the lessons learned is we have a very strong team. And what I mean by that is 
a very strong team collaboration, I guess is probably a better way to put it, where people up from Florida, we were bringing people in from PA, we were bringing people in from other states because we didn't want to miss a beat in New Jersey. So when that market turned on, we were ready from a cultivation perspective. Our, our retail stores were ready to go, but from an actual headcount, we couldn't hire hundreds of people and have them sit around since last August. Our shareholders would kill us if we did that. So we, so again, it's trying to appropriately invest, invest into your, your headcount. So I think the lesson learned is, we do need more time than seven days. As we continue to get more and more states to turn on, you are right. New Jersey, it was an organic win for us. Connecticut, we have an extremely strong presence in Connecticut and that market's getting ready to turn on. New Mexico, New York, and then you got the PAs and Maryland's and Ohio's and Florida's. I mean, these are all markets that we operate in. And these are all markets that we're getting ready to position ourselves ahead of the Gulf East trans- transition. So for us, you learn in Jersey, and it could not have been a, a, a more stressful situation again with the timing, but we got it done. And we're, results so far have exceeded expectations. We're careful to start putting numbers out there because we want to wait to see how this plays out. But I can tell you, we're definitely a top operator in that space, and, and it's a massive organic win for us. But the lesson learned is in times of need, we have a very strong team and people are willing to drop everything and be all hands on deck if need be. But as we go into these other states, this blueprint keeps getting more and more refined and we're going to just be be more and more ready for those adult use turnouts. Yeah, that's great. And like I said, I think we're all still feeding off the buzz. You're seeing seeing the lines still in New Jersey. We're getting people through the lines quickly, but people Uh, are showing up. This is is not a launch day event. This is New Jersey uh, turning up. So it's all very exciting. And also earlier in June, I want to shift gears a little bit. Verano announced an exclusive partnership with Mission Green to support the organization's cannabis criminal justice reform initiatives. So what kind of impact does Verano hope to create through this partnership? And what other measures has the company taken to uplift communities affected by the failed war on drugs? I know you guys have a deep commitment. I'd love to be free to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, and, and I would say we wanted to find the right partnership. And for us, the Mission Green partner, they were looking for an exclusive partner. And we feel with what Weldon Angelos and team, and then what we're trying to accomplish. We just don't want to throw a logo on our website, make a donation, and then call it a day. We want to make sure that we're actually impacting the communities that we're, that we're operating in. And I think one of the biggest things that attracted us to the Mission Green folks is that they understand what the industry needs as a whole. And so for us, it's like when we fight for safe, you know, I think some of the misconceptions in the space is that, hey, you know, these big MSOs are just trying to get this amendment pushed through so they can take advantage of the U.S. capital markets. And you know, while that's true, we just want to operate like a normal business. But also these social equity applicants want to operate like a normal business because the longer that safe takes to pass, it actually benefits the bigger players anyways, because people run out of money and then they're going to end up having to flip these licenses that they're winning. So for us, it's an opportunity to really push through potential change from a safe perspective, which is also going to trickle into the social equity component as well. So we're just scratching the surface of what we're going to do with Mission Green. But I can tell you from the war on drugs to decriminalizing and pardons and everything else, we're going to be heavily involved with the mission that they're that they're pushing through. We've already invested a lot in the communities that we operate in, but I think this is going to really enhance those efforts. Yeah. And then I'd love to a little bit talk, you talk a little bit about like the regulation, some safe banking and some of the other things that are happening, you know, on the state and at federal level. What do you think investors can expect to see across the cannabis space as the industry continues to evolve over the next year? I know lots happen in a cannabis year. And what are you hearing or what are you crystal balling? 
crystal balling obviously gets a little challenging, but I think we've like, all made many mistakes doing that in the space. I know that's right. Yeah. And we did it early on. And yeah, we all pounded our chest and try to show how big the opportunity is. And I think we're getting a little more conservative by design, but I thought um, 22 is my year. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> You're supposed to be on a boat, right? Like that's right. Like that. that's, what, that's what I told myself. <laughs> but no, I would say crystal balling is that you're going to continue to see more markets evolve and, and you're going to see more operators like a Verano continue to position themselves in those markets because the opportunities are still really endless in this space. Like look at Illinois, for instance, you know, it turned on in 2020. It's an afterthought now. Well, guess what? We're stuck at 110 dispensaries. We, we were already supposed to be at 300, working our way to 500. So in every market that we operate in, there's room for growth. There's new markets coming online. So there's room for expansion. So that's exciting there. But the biggest component that should excite investors is this whole state fact, right? I mean, if we could just operate like a normal business, what does that mean? We really don't know what the definition of safe is going to be. But at the end of the day, there has to be a capital markets component to it. So you get credit cards. So basket sizes go up. We can bank at the federal level. We don't have to manage through 150 state chartered bank accounts, which think bandwidth internally. We can now focus people on more strategic projects instead of like writing a check from this account, from this account to this account. Like, I mean, literally to move money to wire funds out is, is a, a massive challenge. So operating on the banking level on a normal front is game changing for us. But then you start to look at 280E goes away maybe. Yeah, our, our effective tax rate is 10% higher just given 280E. And, and this isn't any benefit that the government's giving us. This is just operating like a normal business. So, and then the, the uplisting and the institutional dollars coming in is, I, I can't even quantify what that could potentially mean for this industry, but there are a lot of institutions that are doing work. I used to work at the NYSE. I'm staying very close to the NASDAQ. We're talking to a lot of institutions. And while there's no guarantees or we're not projecting to uplist anytime in the near future, we're having those conversations. And I think that's the benefit. And going back to what I talked about was when you work with regulators, you work with institutions, we can't wait for those opportunities to come to us. We have to be ready for those opportunities and then pounce on them when they present themselves. Yeah, I love it. I love the way you guys are just thinking about just being prepared for like the moment to pounce so again in every aspect of the business. And then just the last two questions. So what's really exciting you most about the next 12 months for Verano? What's on the horizon? Yeah, I think really people forget that we didn't go public with everyone else. And we are a new entrant in the market. But like I was at Cresco, that was November of 2018. So almost four years ago, Cresco went public. So what excites me is we're kind of past that go public phase. And, and then we're past probably the heavy lift from an M&A perspective. So really being able to just operate like a normal business and not have so many additional pieces to the puzzle to focus in on excites me. And then just those opportunities that we just talked about. I mean, you think about, we haven't done salaries back, right? So we have four or $500 million worth of real estate that we can do what with if safe pass? Do you do a line of credit, low single digits? Like, you know, there's opportunities that are ahead of us that we haven't tapped into. Equity-wise, we've done nothing, right? Now, just given the valuation, like, you know, we haven't issued debt with warrants or any type of coverage. Like we haven't done any equity raises outside of one right after we went public. So we really haven't been able to play around with our stock as well. So if there is a boost in the market and we start to get to levels where we're comfortable executing, I think that is exciting. But really, it's just the opportunities that are ahead of us and from a state-by-state perspective. But a lot of work to a lot of work to do. You know, we're not patting ourselves in the back. I, I, I always joke that we're not taking a victory lap. We haven't even bought the cleats to do that yet, you know, or the running shoes because it's just not even time for that. It's just continue to keep your head down and, and grind. I love it. And then the final question, which I'd like to end most podcasts with, 
which is a question I ask my four daughters at the end of every week. The rose and the thorn of the week. So what is the, your rose and your thorn of working in the cannabis industry for so many years? Wow. So the rose is constantly having growth to talk about. You know, I've worked in other industries where I'm like begging to go to conferences and no, I promise we're not producing. I like worked in the paper industry and, and I was like, we were printing enough papers to keep the lights on. It was like a really big challenge, but to be able to talk about the growth that's ahead of us, it's legitimate. And it's not that we're not making this up. Like there are states that are doing work. I mean, Jersey has yet to roll up more dispensaries, Illinois. I mean, we just talked about a lot of the growth opportunities. So I would say the rose is really just capitalizing on the growth that's ahead of us and being able to communicate that to the market. And then when we get our stories really buttoned up and we start to get bigger players sniffing around, then you start to look at, you're not dealing with mom and pop shop investment companies. You're now dealing with the T-Rows and the Wellingtons of the world. I think that really excites me a lot. And then the thorn is always regulation. Look at, we went from not opening a store in, in Florida for months. And then we went on this torrid pace because we had regulatory attention, right? So it's, if, if they would just stay out of our way and just let us operate our business, it would be smooth sailing from here on out. But regulation is the only thing that keeps us up at night. It's, it's look at New Jersey. I know how much different does our top line look if it turns on in August versus now? Right. And so there's so many unknowns and uncertainties around regulation from a federal level, all the way down to the state level, all the way down to the municipality level. I mean, we're trying to get our Neptune store turned on for adult use. And that's going to be the monster store in New Jersey. I mean, it's it's on the, the highway going to the shore. It's by a concert venue. There's plenty of parking around. It's going to be a massive location for us, but you have to get municipality approval to CRC approval. So it's not just us making sure we're ready. It's also we're kind of our, our fate kind of lies in the hands of some of these regulators. So that's the thorn. And I think it will always be the thorn, but hopefully not that changes over time. That's great. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to chat with you and learn a little bit more about Baran and wishing you the best of luck and a great summer. Thank you, Rosie. And uh, yeah, the next one we'll do a marathon podcast. I could talk. Yeah, about it. I got to get my like cannabis fitness crew together.